Welcome to the podcast Adelante Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Peter Block Garcia. Welcome to Adelante Leadership. I'm your co-host, Tania Hino. Season two is a series of episodes that encourage and inspire you to embrace the power of your leadership. We are leaning into the knowledge from season one's previous incredible guests. Emma Torres, migrant farm worker and community activist leader. She's been working as a community representative and farm worker advocate since 1984, at which time she developed some of the earliest templates for community health worker leadership development. She's the founder and CEO of Campesinos Sin Fronteras, a community-based organization serving border families in Yuma County, Arizona. With over 30 years of experience in public health, she co-founded Alianza Nacional de Campesinas to develop farm worker leaders nationally. Emma, welcome to Adelante Leadership. Sí, Emma, mucho gusto y bienvenida. Sí, buenos días, muchas gracias por invitarme. Thank you for inviting me to, to speak with you guys. Emma, what's your story and how do you stepped into your leadership journey? Uh, okay, so a Mexican immigrant came, uh, grew up here in the U.S.-Mexico border of the city of San Luis Rio, Colorado. But parents and my grandparents, uh, and including myself, I was born in Guanajuato, Mexico, so Southern. Mm -hmm. But then as uh, traditionally, you know, the back then they will recruit braceros. And my father was a bracero who came to this country as a bracero and then eventually brought us to the border and then later on to the U.S., I was 11 years old when I came to the United States. And he, my father then had a job and we didn't speak English or anything. Because in, in that time when we came here, because there was no, no job, my mom was pregnant with my youngest uh, sister. And all my siblings, you know, were under 13 years old that we were here. So it was like father did not know about social services either because he was a migrant. He would come six months and will go back to, Me to Mexico six months. Plus, they're very proud. Father was so proud he would never accept handouts, as he would say, mm -hmm. of uh, social services. Mm -hmm. So we didn't, uh, we didn't get for like for three months, we hardly had any anything to to eat. And is that the time that we would start um, going with them to the fields and mm -hmm. help a little bit, uh, help, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with our little buckets, you know, pick up some of the strawberries mm -hmm. and, and give to our parents, uh, to our parents to help them. And I guess that's kind of the beginning of the story. My story, but like I mentioned, you know, my parents mm -hmm. or my grandparents, I had family, I have tias that were born in Texas. Back then when they were not necessarily coming as braceros, they were just coming across and working and going back to their home. There was no need for documents or anything. That's what the, my mother used to tell me. When we came here, we came legally again, thanks to the, the sacrifices and the work that my father did since he was very young. He was 18. Mm -hmm. He was recruited as a bracero for the first time. Then in reference to the type of, uh, you know, daughter of a very hardworking family, father, he had a first grade education. My father always used to say that my mother was felt that she was very intelligent because she went to school and he didn't. They were not educated. However, they have very strong uh, ethics. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I mentioned that my father always said, you know, I had made it so far without going to school and, and hard work. So that's that's kind of thing that we learned about hard work. Mm -hmm. And all of my family are very hardworking. We're, we're even now having 
difficulty, this attachment from work. There's nothing else that we know we know how to do, but and that we find a connection to who we are. Our identity is connected to our to our work and our ability to provide for ourselves and our families. When I was eleven, like I said, I didn't I couldn't go to school because again we didn't have money. We didn't have, when you talk about leadership, Peter, it's I never knew that I was so competitive. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's part of my leadership. You know, I didn't like to be behind. I the reason why I felt comfortable being on the corner is because uh, I, I don't like to be in the corner. You know, I am big. I used to speak up. And for me and for others, you know, that's some of the traits of, of leadership that we don't conform. Yeah. Though it's, it's out of our reach and understanding of why these things are, you just don't do not conform about it. You keep pushing and trying. I guess for that same leadership that I guess I was not conforming, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't popular with some girls and they started like really <laughs> bullying me and harassing mm-hmm. me. And again, I, I, I didn't allow it. I, I stood up to it. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I fought that girl that was, she was a leader. I was a leader somehow. We, we clash together, we clash and uh, they moved me to high school. Uh, wow. Where I went to high school in another city because that little town where I was, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be in that school. So I moved almost 13 years old and um, I started working in agriculture. That was the end of my schooling. Yeah. That I am. What a, an incredible journey of leadership, uh, Emma. And it seems like your father, your parents and your ancestors, these teachers in California seems to be and inspire leadership in your leadership story. Who else has inspired you in your leadership journey? I think it continues being the family because there were some tragedies in my life made uh, my life turn another direction. But uh, who inspired me? You know, when we were like 15, 16 years old, when uh, we were involved with the Cesar Chavez movement in California ah, and ah. in California and in uh, in Arizona. My parents were very involved. My family, my whole family, uncles and, and mother and, and father were supportive of Cesar Chavez. And we were young, but we were also the whole family. You know, we all come and we when the mm-hmm. marchers that was going to come through our city, we would be the ones fixing the meals for them and meeting them in the park and we would be at the rallies where we would hear Cesar Chavez talk about us having the, you know, the right for a better life, for better wages. And although mm-hmm. I mean, it was the first time I, I heard him, you know, they really stuck in my mind because uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I'm not a person that conforms to just the way things mm-hmm. are, you know. When I was in the fields, I would see people screaming at older people and that's there's respect, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so the, the foreman. You know, screaming at the older people because they cannot, you know, like cars. I just felt in my stomach that it's not right. You know, you, you mm-hmm. cannot be, you know, speaking to them this way. And I would stand up for them. And I was a young mm-hmm. person, but I was kind of asking for that respect that I was taught. So mm-hmm. that's why I think it goes back to family, but also it was related to Cesar. You know, I, we were really involved for a couple of years, both in Arizona and California, when I was in California, we would go and boycott since 8 a.m. in the morning to class and everything. And one day I was even put in jail because <laughs> I was mm-hmm. one of the leaders. I was like 16, 17 years old. When they uh, they ambushed us, they, they invited us in 
to speak to the people. Once we were in the field, they, they started beating us up and chasing us and getting some of us, arresting some of us. And, and uh, men, particularly, I was the only female. They, think, uh, they thought I was older I, because of, again, of how I covered my face and everything. I was only 16, 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, Cesar Chavez, you know, um, legacy mm-hmm. in leadership. But again, it's all related to, to our agricultural work. After that, you know, I was terrified of my father because I was in prison, you know, in jail. So I, I thought, oh my God, you know, um, my father is going to be yeah. up or something. But then when I came home, that was my whole worry when I was in, in jail. So when I oh. came home, my father was said, uh, you know, I was like I, not knowing what to expect. And he said, you know, I'm so proud of you because you have, you have been able to do things that I wasn't able to do. So uh, I think that was very um, impactful in my life. Um, something that kind of fuel me to continue doing the things that I was doing because like I said when you're young and you don't know being taught to take this or you're not in school to guide you to this but you just feel you know what is right and Mm -hmm. my father you know although he was very um, very humble very uh, like he said you know uh, unschooled and and he didn't tell that he was very smart he had so many wonderful traits that he Mm -hmm. taught to do and and one of the things that uh, he was very noble, and but you know, I think those words impacted me in the way that you know, like he said, I'm proud of you because you are doing what I have not had had the courage to do. So wow. that told me that you know he didn't agree to the, the injustices either. Yeah, he didn't agree to the the ways that he had been treated. Mm-hmm. He did not know or had the uh, the courage, I guess, to to do it. And so those words really impacted me in, in, in the leadership, like you said, the leadership journey. After that, I, saw, I decided I needed to do something different. And that's when four years into marriage, I, I became a, a pregnant again. And But then at the same time, I, my husband uh, diagnosed with leukemia. Oh, no. And when I was told that I was pregnant, I was three months into my pregnancy when I found out and then he he was given six months because oh, no. uh, he was on a terminal stage of leukemia already mm. so ironically the same time he was given to leave that was the, my due date wow. I had to go and ask the doctor to help me have the baby before uh so I could at least be with my husband when he was dying oh my gosh and, uh, that was uh, her time too. What is journey of resiliency and leadership? Because nobody can teach us those experiences. There's no way it can be in a book and teach us to have that courage to continue on. Adelante. No, and I think that, that you say, you know, sometimes you don't know what life is going to throw at you. You know, you don't know what it's, but you know, what characteristics that were passed on by your family of, uh, you know, standing up and working and supporting yourselves in the midst of pain and everything, still moving forward and, and crawl and until you're able to step up, you know, uh, but just the fact that they, people would come together and give you, that's kind of a very transcending thing for me in reference to giving back 
Mm-hmm. Because there are people, no matter how poor they are, when somebody is in, in disgrace and in mm-hmm. a bad situation, everybody comes in and pitches in a little bit. Uh, so I never had to ask the government for any assistance or anything. Uh, the only time I, I did came to because somebody told me your daughter uh, and it's, you know, she's staying home and she needs food and you can qualify for food stamps. And I had never I have never received any type of distance, not even unemployment when I, we were not uh, working. We have worked all our lives, but we have never received any federal mm-hmm. assistance of any kind. And mm-hmm. when I came to ask for food stamps, uh, the, I was mistreated like I was the worst person and begging and everything. I was really offended by the way I was treated. Mm-hmm. So I stood up and I threw the papers at the lady's <laughs> face and I said, I don't need you. you know? But um, it was the pride that, that kept me going into eye-opening about mm-hmm. what the system of pe- the people that have to go through it. So mm-hmm. I thought I would rather, like, again, my pride and my teachings, I will rather die with dignity. <laughs> Yeah. And then be mistreated. Those were the teachings that my father taught us. Later on, I I learned about Zapata. He said I would rather die on on my feet than than live on my knees. I said, okay, "Okay, so this is the people that we are. Mm -hmm. We are proud. And that's pride is our own resilience. That's Mm -hmm. what allows us to move forward. That's what holds us together in the midst of tragedies and after um, my husband um, died and I went back to my mom's and my sisters they helped me taking care of my my newborn wow. and, and uh, I came home and he said he died huh he though he also died because of me because of the sickness I said no no he's mm-hmm. he's fine but but then that fear of is my baby going to be sick because of him that not knowing that kind of what me into learning more about health education and learning how to find sort of, uh, you know, answers for our, our fears and concerns. That's what got me into wanting to, to know more and, and helping others understand. So I said, no, he, he's okay, but that's stuck in my mind. You know, what happened with my son? What is going to happen? Is he going to have leukemia as well? Is what, what is leukemia? What is pesticide? Because they used to talk at the hospital a lot about, you know, asking a lot of questions about pesticides and if you were working on pesticides. That really got me into wanting to do that type of work and teaching other other people about, you know, the dangers of pesticides, the dangers of, of the work that we do and so forth. So there, there were throughout the journey that you were talking, you know, uh, Tanya, different you you grab certain things that start forming you into this is what I want to do this is what I so other people would not have to go through things I want you know so they would not have the doubts about Mm. the the information so you value how important that is yeah Yeah. because people tell you not because there's books about it like you were saying Mm -hmm. because you see it uh, because you lived it and you know Mm -hmm. how hard it is for people Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you do in your leadership teaching that encourages them to address or resolve their trauma? I don't think that we ask people enough about telling their stories. I think that there's a lot of trauma still within us because we don't talk about it because it's it's part of our pride. I don't want to talk about when I'm vulnerable. I might be crying or that's also a step of courage that you have to take. I use a lot of our dichos that our parents and grandparents, like for instance, 
vale más prevenir que lamentar. So it's better to prevent than to lament later on or, or to be sorry. And so you use that wisdom of our ancestors mm. and our parents and put it in simple content where it makes sense. So I use a lot about that. And I yeah. do tell them that, that I tell them about our background and our stories. I call them a, our song. I, I tell them that we all have a song to sing. Well, because people relate to that. Our, at least the women, I work a lot with mostly with women. And I said, we all have our own song. And that song is beautiful. It's important. And it means a lot to us because that's who we are. Because when I start talking or when they start asking me, Emma about this and that, and they're like, oh, wow, you know, like I said, hey, hey, don't forget, you have your own song. And with that, I send them the message that your story is as important as mine. You have overcome barriers and you have the courage to do this and you're here learning and talking because you're you're there. I Sometimes I tell them you may be a little bit, a few steps behind me, but you're in the same path. And there's others ahead of me, you know, that are also on the same path but in, we're all on a path of development and said, no, it doesn't matter how small the step is, but as long as you keep moving forward, you eventually will go so far that you will not even believe it. So I use a lot of those visuals and expressions, but that are coming from my own culture yeah. and yeah. beliefs. And that's how I teach. Each individual is so powerful. It has so many resources within themselves. And I, that's what I, the message I pass on to that individual that I work with. They have to first feel valuable before they can go out there and, and tell anybody that they're valuable. They have to first feel it and, and, and believe it and walk on it. Once the model started being scientifically studied and demonstrated impact and all that, then it became sexy. Everybody wanted to be a promotora, promotora. When before we were a bunch of gossiping women, all of a sudden, no, I want to be a promotora. I went without really going back to understanding what is a promotora. What are the blueprints of a promotora, promotora? What made it effective to begin with? value the what made it but then they didn't want it to use pack that empathy something that was one of the elements they didn't want it to say that sacrifice was another one of the value they didn't want it to because they said those you cannot value that you have to have measurable impact of on you know scientific methodology and the real the blueprints are not necessarily scientific methodology eventually it shows that eventually but it's about natural instinct ability of helping ourselves of taking the lead of again of uh, taking the risk of being the leader in the front and the one receiving the first laps <laughs> whatever you know but it's taking that risk again and being courageous and when you believe in that you are have the ability to help yourself and others. But this is what makes this program effective. They don't want yeah. to listen. They rather went on to, oh, where are the core competencies? I said, I don't care how much competency you can have a PhD individual that if, if they don't have this elements, they will not be an, an effective promotor or promoter. People will reject them. They will not be able to help them. They didn't recognize that the values our core competencies. And, and I think still today, they're barely starting to operate some of that, like, okay, okay, now faith is demonstrated that, uh, you know, I always told them, for us, 
we don't believe in psychology or but we believe in our faith we believe that there is a higher being that helps us when our strength is done when we don't have anything else we grab on to this extraordinary power that moves us forward and that's who we, we believe is our creator and that's what most of the people that i work with believe in and that is what they grab on when it's uh, you know when there's nothing else to hold on and they don't go run to a psychologist they don't run to anybody they run to their faith. And I have written about that too. And we have even an article about it that is called Con el Favor de Dios, The Favor of God, where I spoke about that. So, but again, people want to make everything scientific in order to move. Tell me about the work that you're doing with the Alianza Nacional de Campesinos. Okay. What I'm doing, Alianza, it's a, a national group of farm worker women. That again, and and thinking about leadership and and women and, you know, how we always are courageous and we take on things that we we don't even know, you know, that was another way of um, beginning to prove that concept. And we began, a friend and I and other women began this concept of establishing a national alianza de mujeres campesinas, farm worker women. And the idea was to build leadership among these uh, women so we can speak and we can advocate for ourselves and our families and our, and our communities. It's not that old. I think Alianza has been in existence now for seven or eight years, but it now has been started to be recognized at very different levels because of the work that has been done. And, and I think that the most important thing here is that we decided that we will bring, the Alianza will be formed by organizations that were started by women or that were run by women, farm worker women. And we will train them on, on how you begin an organization, how you have a, you're part of a board training. And I, and among ourselves, in, um, you know, I have given some trainings on how do you establish a 501c3, you know, organization? How do you go about applying for grants and what is required, what the infrastructure, administrative infrastructure, and then other members. And right now the director, she's very strong in advocacy. She's an organizer and she's really on, on uh, you know, sexual assault uh, prevention. And so, you know, she has done national work on that. So then she comes and teaches about that. And then somebody else comes and teaches about agriculture and, you know, how do you own home gardens and for sustainability. And so we use our own uh, skills and we uh, teach uh, among ourselves. And lately we've been putting that uh, open as webinars. Um, we have started to reach out. And I have a group in Mexico that I started replicating campesinos with, with a, a farm worker women group in Mexico by the rural areas and replicating exactly. And, this is, and I see the results, the, uh, the blueprints have been used again and with mm-hmm. uh, Alianza, they have been used at a national level. So I can see that what we do maintains that ability to replicate itself when you use that. This is about a self-empowerment and, and helping individuals, giving them just a little bit of guidance and skills with training because they already have that within themselves. And Alianza, since it's national, it has uh, representatives throughout the nations. From your own leadership work and journey, 
what are some things you're proud of? Well, I think that you were mentioning earlier about passing on that value of humility. And I think passing on that passion and value for service, but in a manner that is humble, even if you're criticized, even if you know you're being criticized by doing or being who you are, you know, not caring about that, just continue being who you are. I think that eventually is that genuine aspect of you eventually is appreciated by those that really believe in this type of leadership. So a lot of times I'm against uh, a lot of the odds and trying to keep our values and our culture in a uh, system that doesn't value and respect a lot of times or, or support that they think that you're you're stupid or you're a bad administrator because you do things differently. But I have learned to live with my, myself and my decisions and if I think that this is the right way and the right thing that will provide that leadership and at the same time value to the individual that I work with, then I don't care. <laughs> I just do it. The other individual that just criticized you and so forth, they're not there to help when you need it. They're not there to guide the people or give them a hand when they need it. I know there's a lot of people that are sincerely in the service for no other reason, for no self-interest, but for the fact of being able to serve or feeling that responsibility of, you know, you have given a leadership skill, leadership role, then you have a responsibility to implement it. It's not complicated, Peter. It just appears to be more complicated. And what I'm doing right now, as I'm thinking eventually that there's going to be a time when I have to retire, I'm thinking about just really focusing on passing on the batu to others, teaching and, and building leadership among other younger uh, women that I see or men that I see that really have that in within themselves. What's one thing that you were most proud of in your leadership journey? Seeing the outcomes of those women, men and women, like promotoras that have been touched by my leadership. They have found their potential. They're satisfied. They're happy. They're proud of, the, of themselves. And, and when they sing their song, you hear that there's a beautiful song. And that's the most valuable thing. Yeah, my most proud moments are when I see another one of these humble women that I took out of the fields that, you know, were the Nagaru school that now a community health worker certificate. And that's their biggest achievement in life. And they feel that like, that's way, you know, like above a PhD or whatever, but because of the power that they have, the impact that they have, the influence that they have, not just in their family, but their community, the respect they have. But they continue being humble. They continue being just teaching others and helping others and working on making little circles to plant or teaching a diabetes class or going to a, making a presentation at a, in the nation or, or going to speak to a Mexican consulate. You know, whatever their role is, it's like they're multiple, they have multiple skills and, and they're multitaskers and they're respected because of that by their peers and the people, you know, they give them that power, but they don't abuse the power. They just use it to ensure that others are coming behind us, continue the passing on what we have learned. Time and after it's feeling like I'm an uneducated woman, I'm I'm a widow now, I'm no nobody, you don't have a man behind you or by you, you, you don't have the respect of uh, the, your society and the one that you, you live. And so I was like, how do I make these people respect me for who I am and not because I have a man by me? That kind of was my, the idea that I realized because of the way I, I saw that people were treating me, even my own family, you know, that, uh, that status of a 
a woman without a man, you know, a widow, mm -hmm. that's a, you're not a senorita, you're not a married woman, what are you? Where, mm. where do you fall? It's very difficult to find your space and the respect that people, uh, that women uh, need to have in this difficult times because they, they expected that I will be crying in the corner and stretching my hands so people can come and, and feed me and give me, but then men uh, take advantage of that. Yeah, they want to give you something for something else. And I say, no, you know, this is, I have worked all my life. I don't need this. And I'm going to stand up on my own and I'm going to show these people that I can do this because I'm a hard worker. I can do this. But again, it's going against your own culture and beliefs and expectations of how you're going to get out of this situation. So I went on and I started going to school and because I, I thought, how am I going to teach my kids? How am I going to you know, I'm in this country. I'm not going back to Mexico. There's nothing mm. out there. You know, how do I teach my children to go to school and complete it? So maybe my, my idea was, so maybe if I find a job, maybe at a store, as a clerk, even, you know, not even having to do any talking or anything, just as a, you know, kind of stocking merchandise or whatever, then my kids will not go to the fields anymore. Maybe they will be the managers in the future of that mm. store. That, that was kind of my, my idea. So I stepped up. Out of the fields and I, uh, I dedicated myself to going to school. The first two years, I couldn't learn anything because I had dropped school so young. I had not I had a very foundation mm -hmm. of uh, academics in my mind. I didn't know what a phrase was. I didn't know what a verbs and all that, mm -hmm. you know, the grammar and everything. I, I had no idea of that. That was very difficult for me to come back to school. And I was even told at one time that I was like close to being a moron. Understand, and since I didn't understand English or Spanish, I was oh. in a in a test that I did that it, it came to be that. And at that time, I didn't know what that meant, so I didn't get angry. <laughs> <laughs> Until later on, uh, when I went to school and eventually I built my vocabulary and everything, I learned what it meant. And I said, oh, I got to go back and find it now. And it was years later. I didn't feel like I, there was anything in life that I couldn't do. I just thought if I survive this, I can do this. And if I want yeah. to torture, if I do this, there's nothing I cannot do. So, you know, when I came back to Arizona, I, I went to this trade school and I went and asked for the director of the at the school and I said I want to tell you my story and I said you know because I need help and this mm -hmm. is what I need you this is what I wanted to and mm. she said I, I will help you, but you need to start from the way bottom. You need to start speaking English. You need to start learning basic you know, mm -hmm. education and, and you need to get your GED and I want to help you that. And mm. that's what he did. And amazingly, in two months, I got my GED. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I did it in Spanish, but I got it. You know, so that mm -hmm. kind of those small victories were uh, teaching me. I'm not that stupid, you know, because sometimes when you don't go to school and, and you work in the field, people among our, themselves they joke and say burro and you know you're mm. um, and you're because you don't you don't go to school that 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 mm. you you're not very intelligent mm -hmm. and, and you believe it sometimes you believe that so when, mm -hmm. when I started going to school and, and making those little uh you know advances in in my academics and everything then I started telling myself I'm not that stupid I can do this you know, <laughs> and I would look around I would see people and everything they don't look very smart and they're doing that. I, I can do that. So so eventually that's how I, I, I started putting myself through school and going uh, since my mother and my my sisters took care of my children, I will be literally day and night in school for two years. Wow. Uh, learning to speak. It was very, very hard. I'm not gonna say it was an easy thing. And yeah. I, tell, uh, I tell people, you know, 
it's not easy, but you can do it. If I was able to do it without any foundational uh, academic, yeah. or, you know, education, you can do it. If you have a high school, come on, yeah. you can do this. And so I went through that process and, and learning slowly that mm-hmm. eventually believing again that anything is possible. So I started, mm-hmm. um, was in that, that trade school and then they came to, from the a university, somebody told them about me that I had been recently migrating and had a child and they were starting a, a pilot project for community health workers back ah. in 1986. I think like I was recruited to be the, one of the first community health workers in Arizona in 1986 and they wanted me because I represented the farm worker women and, and I had really recently been pregnant. I was in the perinatal stage still. And the, the problem they were having was called Health Star. And it was to work with migrant farm wo- worker women uh, that either were pregnant or were in their perinatal stage to help them take care of their babies and, and themselves. Yeah. And that's how I started. Uh-huh. So that's how you started. You've been a leader in that whole field, you know, ever since. You have been doing community leadership development with other farm workers, whether it's as a part of company sin fronteras. I mean, that's what you've been doing so much of your life. What have you learned about how to encourage farm workers to step into leadership? I think, and uh, because of, I'm talking about my, about my story right now, I'm seeing the thread. It's all related because at that time when they hired me to do this, I didn't want it to. I didn't. I didn't know what they wanted or anything. But they said, but you represent those women and you know them and you can help us recruit those women. That's mm. all we want. We want you to help us recruit. And, and then since I didn't speak English, they later on, they told me that's why. And I didn't have the, the scientific background of the whole prenatal care and everything. But they hired a lady, a nurse practitioner, but she didn't spoke a word of Spanish. So wow. that was an opportunity for me to, with my little dictionary, <laughs> And with, uh, you know, in teaching and translating for Marie, who was the mm-hmm. coordinator, in translating, I learned the language, I learned the process. And then I was being taught the leadership part on the other end from the university to teach the promotoras. We were also former farm worker women. Mm-hmm. And that's how I kind of helped develop those blueprints that eventually became so su- successful that became a model and uh, that yeah. now is throughout the country. Now everybody takes credit of uh, developing that model. And I always say, you know, I just smile and to myself and I think I have the blueprints, you know, I have mm-hmm. the yeah. I know mm-hmm. exactly what needs to happen. But because of those blueprints and because of that success that we had and, and how empowering it was for the women that we work and for myself, because I learned so much in that process. That's what I've been using for my agency as a core. That's seen that that's the empowerment that people talk about. You don't have it within yourself. You cannot give or, or build anybody. Mm-hmm. You have to first be empowered in order to be able to mm-hmm. teach others. And that mm-hmm. I learned because that's how it worked with me. And then seeing, you know, again, not being fearless pretty much about, you know, we went to legislation with a model. We went to speak it in front of legislators and told them what the program was, what it was making and everything, the rural areas of Arizona. And it passed legislation and that program has Yay. been... Uh, it has been, I didn't know what that meant at that time. <laughs> I told me to do it and I went and did it. Now I see the value of it. But one of the things that happened, that program has been instituted in the Arizona Department of Health Services since more than 30 years. 
with funding and still being used as a model that, but then for me, the most important part here was what happened within yourself when you start seeing the, you know, how capable you are, that you're able yep. to succeed and that you, you know, and then seeing how all these women that I started working with in different programs are now in leadership positions that are in mm-hmm. school, you know, when, because for them, but like, you know, you're like with me, you know, I, I never saw myself going through college and going mm. through you know, the university. And then I was able to go and, and I and complete it. I, I did not just achieve my, my dream of getting my GED. I further than I even thought and dreamt of when I got my bachelor's. And then when I got my bachelor's, I said, this is not that hard. Uh-huh. I can do my master's. This is not difficult. This is not uh-huh. difficult work and that's it. And I went after my master's and I got it in one year, you know, and uh wow and a spending program because I had such high grades. So again, um, I never thought myself as extraordinary super intelligent women or anything I just always consider myself a hard worker woman that's mm-hmm. all I always thought but then I learned that with hard work and again we're all smart people I and that's what I tell people there's no dumb people we're all smart people that, mm-hmm. just that some of us have not been able to go through the process that teaches you how to learn but you are smart and and I guess that has been uh, going back to the leadership and teaching and, and being a, a role model throughout the country for many years to hundreds of women. Wow. That's, that's really just telling my story a little bit in reference to how you're able to achieve an education. Once the model started being scientifically studied and demonstrated impact and all that, then it became sexy. Everybody wanted to be a promotor, a promotor. When before we were a bunch of gossiping women, all of a sudden, no, I want to be a promotora. I want, without really going back to understanding what is a promotora, what are the blueprints of a promotora, promotora, what made it effective to begin with, value, the what made it, but then they didn't want it to use fact that empathy, something that was one of the elements. They didn't want it to say that sacrifice was another one of the values. They didn't want it to, because they said those, you cannot value that. You have to have measurable impact of on you know, scientific methodology. And the real, the blueprints are not necessarily scientific methodology. Eventually it shows that eventually, but it's about natural instinct, ability of helping ourselves, of taking the lead of, again, of, of taking the risk of being the leader in the front and the one receiving the first laps, <laughs> whatever, you know, but it's taking that risk again and being courageous. And when you believe in that you are, have the ability to help yourself and others, but this is what makes this program effective. They don't want yeah. to listen. They rather went on to, well, where are the core competencies? I said, I don't care how much competency you can have a PhD individual that if they don't have this elements, they will not be an, an effective promotor or promote. People will reject them. They will not be able to help them. They didn't recognize that the values are core competencies. And, and I think still today, they're barely starting to embrace some of that, like, oh, faith, okay, now faith is demonstrated that, uh, you know, I always told them, for us, 
we don't believe in psychology or but we believe in our faith we believe that there is a higher being that helps us when our strength is done when we don't have anything else we grab on to this extraordinary power that moves us forward and that's who we, we believe is our creator and that's what most of the people that i work with believe in and that is what they grab on when it's that you know when there's nothing else to hold on and they don't go run to a psychologist they don't run to anybody they run to their faith. And I have written about that too. And we have even an article about it that is called Con el Favor de Dios, The Favor of God, where I spoke about that. So, but again, people want to make everything scientific in order to move. What are the elements or education that you think goes along with developing promotor leadership? I think that one of the elements cultural humility. If you stay uh, humble, if you stay where you were, where you began this and realize the uh, potential that this program had to serve your own people, but you never lose that humility. You always stay uh, humble to understanding that you're only a helper, passing on something that you discover that is good, sharing that knowledge to others. And it's hard because as you're developing your leadership, people start treating you differently. <laughs> people start treating you like you're above them or you're smarter than them and everything. At first, I kind of refused to be treated like that, but then I realized that it's part of the development of leadership as well. And yeah. it was hard for me to accept that and I, it was far, hard for the people to accept that I wanted to stay humble you know so it's something that unfortunately sometimes it's difficult to maintain simple common sense elements of leadership <laughs> because other people have other expectations that leadership should be different I find that is often the case as well as people start stepping into positions of power which I distinguish different from leadership, they have more challenges staying true to their values. So as you are educating new leaders, what do you do to help them stay true to their values? I always tell them, never forget who you are, where you come from, and always have your two feet in the ground. Because at the end of the day, sometimes you will not feel appreciated. It's not going to be paid enough. It's, it's going to be sacrificed. But if you believe what you're doing right now, and then you stay true to it, whenever you're really feeling burned out or whatever, you remember that. You refocus. You keep your aim. I always tell them, keep focus where you need, because there's many distractions. And that that you just mentioned about people giving you power, you know, you have your own power, but people People start giving you their own power and treating you different. And I think that is a risk. You have to be self-conscious about this because it feels good to have power. For me, like that, I see it more as a responsibility than the power because I'm very conscious. I'm very self-conscious. I'm very emotional, intelligent. I think with, with power comes responsibility. And the more power people give you is that they give you their power so you can solve their problems. And I said, I don't believe in that type of leadership. I believe in the leadership where we all move together forward. Very than horizontal leadership where it's top down, I believe that horizontal. And if mm. you know we grab ourselves by the arms and we push ourselves forward, it's a stronger force than one person being on the front. Because a lot of times that person on the front takes advantage or doesn't know how to handle power, doesn't know how to handle power, and their values start beginning to be compromised. Yeah, I've been asked to run for office as long yeah. as I change parties or as long as I... <laughs> accept to believe in, in certain things that I don't believe, 
And that is something is within me. I have to make that decision. I have at night, I have to go to sleep with Emma and feeling that, you know, you're being true to yourself. If you cannot be true to yourself, you cannot be true to anybody. You have to be honest to yourself. How do we teach that with other emerging community leaders? I keep telling them that the leaders that I have are so strong promotoras. I think I have the best promotora, the strongest, the most genuine, because I learned it in the process and I had to face them. And since I'm very conscious and sensitive about, you know, what's going on within me, well, how am I feeling this way? And is this going to, how is this going to help me? Or how do they see me? And what was the message I want to send them? I had to be very aware of my limitations and all my responsibilities as an individual toward others. So believing in a higher being and everything. I think all of that at the same time that I was developing as an individual, I always felt like I have lived two lives. You know, I grew up a farm worker, no, no education. I really feel such responsibility. I would be a little bit different where I would not be so metiche, you know, like I'm always jumping out the front, you know, advocating for the rights of others, cannot stand injustices. And sometimes I, you know, I see everybody, everybody else around me and they don't seem to be moved by it. I say, why can't I be like them? <laughs> you know, sometimes I wish I could be, just, but then I'm not. Once I, I got to the age and understanding of who I was and then I had to do whatever I thought was the right thing and not what other people thought it was the right thing. Because it's also part of maturity, you know, I think I was in my 30 some years and I realized I don't I don't need to please anybody. I need Mm -hmm. to do whatever I I need to do because so many expectations from everybody else and many that you can't please anybody, you know, and again, you can only try to do so much. And that's really coming back to yourself and being um, in tune with who you are and your values and your family, because we carry on the responsibility of carrying on our our family's values. I feel that we have an obligation of carrying on our culture to our younger ones, because those are the values that had given us uh, where to stand on when difficult things come forward. Like I mentioned last time, my parents did not have any education, but they had values that they passed on. I'm going to go back to your beginning of when you said one of our values is working hard. It's been passed on. And the trouble now is that we carry a lot of trauma at, in our Latinx community. Just like your in your story itself, it has so much trauma, but at the same time, you use it for resiliency. And I'm wondering why would it be important for our community to learn how to rest and learn about colonization and learn about that resting is part of our identity and resting is part of recharging ourselves so that we can heal our trauma at the same time, move forward just like you did and showing by example. What do you think our community will benefit from resting and healing from trauma? I, I think that we rest. We have our own ways of resting. I became a lot closer to my creator. My faith was my strength, was mm-hmm. my rest, was what will give me the resiliency I, I, at the moment of despair and like I cannot continue on. My faith gave me that you know ability to rest and move forward. And I learned that it is okay to stop and not do anything for a, a while, like even, you know, a, a week or so just and allow things to take place and fall in their place because there's some things that throughout life that you have no control on. And, uh-huh. and when you learn that, that, the, you know, you can only control so much, but then 
when you really attune to yourself and understand how you're feeling and everything, like I said, with the promotora, you cannot give what you have. How can you give mm. to people by resting and, and doing, you know, that if you don't do it to yourself? Right. So you have to be aware of who you are and, and know when you really get into that point where you just need to stop everything. Thing I tell the people that I work with, don't do anything for a week. Let's leave. Yep. Go and do something that you really enjoy. Do, mm. Don't think about anybody by yourself this week. Just, you know, refill, replenish yourself and be able to fill your cup again so you can continue giving. If you cannot, mm-hmm. if you don't do that, you will have nothing to give. Yeah. That's kind of the, what I, the example that I use because like, I have learned that, you know, when I was so tired and I didn't want to leave anymore, you know, I was really uh, wanting to die. That was for me that like the best way to put a stop to everything, all the pain and everything, especially after my husband died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would be laying down you know, like if I was sleeping, my family will allow me to do that, will feed me, will stay by me, you know, until I would continue listening to the crying of my babies and realizing that they were my babies, they were my mm-hmm. responsibility. I had to stand up, I had to get up mm-hmm. and I had to put myself together to be able to, to move forward. But then I had that rest. I had that opportunity and, and I was taken care of. So mm-hmm. that's why it's so important that we have that community, that we have your family, that you have that mm-hmm. uh, group that supports you, that understands that this is a hard journey. Life is a hard journey. Mm-hmm. And that it, but it, that it is okay to sometimes when there is tragedy in your life just to stop and rest and allow it to take place, whatever is going to happen, and then recuperate, mm-hmm. you know, fill your cup again and move mm-hmm. forward. I'm very sensitive to myself. Correct. What am I feeling? You know, and I always tell my staff, I said, it will be so embarrassing to die from a heart stroke when I am teaching about <laughs> how to prevent <laughs> heart strokes. And yeah. I think that, you know, even perhaps by pride, but I have to take care of myself. I have to watch my cholesterol, my everything to... So I don't do that, but there is different things that you learn through doing this type of work in teaching others. If you're going to teach about something, you must be able to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, our people don't, don't believe words. They believe what they see. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I always tell the promotoras, hey guys, lose weight. <laughs> Look at you, you know, you're going to go about talking about them. They're going to laugh at you when they see you because that's how our people are. They, mm-hmm. they, what they see, that's what they believe. You know, we had had, um, sometimes when I used to work at a clinic, you know, I would refer people to doctors and the doctors were this type of doctor that were kind of hippies and you know they didn't look like a doctor and people would not want to go with them uh-huh. he doesn't even take care of himself look at him he doesn't shower how am I how is he gonna help me so you know that's that's how our people are you know they they see you and they believe on, on what they see so even yeah. uh, that's another thing I teach the promotors when you go to the fields you dress up and just like mm. a worker because they will see you as an equal they will talk to you as an equal uh, but mm-hmm. if you go with you know high heels and all that they will start whistling at you and telling you name don't no respect whatsoever don't do that so you know just learning to know and be very attuned with your people and, mm-hmm. and what they who they are and what they they like and, and how to what do they respond I think that's that's an ability that one in leadership must have. And yeah. Always, always be thinking about our, the people that we serve before we think about ourselves. And I know that that's difficult for some people. I find the people now that I grew up working in the field with speak to me and they refer to me as usted. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's kind of a high level of respect. Mm-hmm. And I say, ¿Por qué me hablas de, de usted? Somos igual. Acuérdate que crecimos juntos. You know, we learned <laughs> Up, say, no, 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 but you have done so much and all that. And, and then they, they start like 
telling you, you know, you have earned, earned this respect. And I said, no, 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 but I, I don't feel comfortable. You talked to me by yourself. I said, but you earned it. And I said, mm-hmm. and we will do that. And I said, okay, well, I will respect that. Then <laughs> just know that I'm not feeling comfortable with it, but I said, but I will respect that you feel that way. And so those are teachings of our own people that we yeah. must be sensitive to. You know, they tell you people are so smart and, and, and consistently teaching us about what they want and what they need. We cannot mm-hmm. want to tell them what they want or what they should want or what should they need. I think that's another way of respecting your community by really recognizing what they're mm-hmm. telling you and, and mm-hmm. responding to that. When you yeah. when you think that you go, you go you're gonna go and teach them something, you're wrong. You're going, mm-hmm. you know, they can teach you. They can teach you. You might have theories, you might have things, you might have connections that you know how that uh, information they're giving you will connect to give them the results they want. But that's how they communicate. They tell you. When they trust you, they tell you. Is there anything else you do in your leadership teaching that encourages them to address or resolve their trauma? I don't think that we ask people enough about telling their stories. I think that there's a lot of trauma still within us because we don't talk about it because it's it's part of our pride. I don't want to talk about when I'm vulnerable. I might be crying or that's also a step of courage that you have to take. I use a lot of our dichos that our parents and grandparents, like for instance, vale más prevenir que lamentar. So it's better to prevent than to lament later on or, or to be sorry. And so you use that wisdom of our ancestors mm. and our parents and put it in simple context where it makes sense. So I use a lot about that. And I yeah. do tell them that, that I tell them about our background and our stories. I call them a, our song. I, I tell them that we all have a song to sing well, because people relate to that. Our, at least the women, I work a lot with mostly with women. And I said, we all have our own song. And that song is beautiful. It's important. And it means a lot to us because that's who we are. Because when I start talking or when they start asking me, Emma about this and that, and they're like, oh, wow, you know, like I said, hey, hey, don't forget, you have your own song. And with that, I send them the message that your story is as important as mine. You have overcome barriers and you have the courage to do this and you're here learning and talking because you're you're there. I Sometimes I tell them you may be a little bit, a few steps behind me, but you're in the same path. And there's others ahead of me, you know, that are also on the same path. But we're all on a path of development and said, no, it doesn't matter how small the step is, but as long as you keep moving forward, you eventually will go so far that you will not even believe it. So I use a lot of those visuals and expressions, but that are coming from my own culture and beliefs. And that's how I teach. Each individual is so powerful. It has so many resources within themselves. And I, that's what I, the message I pass on to that individual that I work with. They have to first feel valuable before they can go out there and, and tell anybody that they're valuable. They have to first feel it and, and, and believe it and walk on it. Emma, I'm wondering how, you know, when we're trying to encourage other Latin community members to step into the leadership, how do you encourage folks to heal and resolve some of the traumas so that they can be more effective leaders? Well, just like what you're doing right now, you're validating the lives and the stories of those people. 
no matter who they are and at what level of their leadership, you validate the individuals and allow them to tell the story and that process learn about wow. how you were able to actually be resilient in that process. Because oftentimes mm-hmm. we don't even think about it. We just we just do. We just leave. Yeah. We just uh, respond. And and again, uh, times I I feel like a burden to be told that I'm a leader. I, I really feel it like a burden. I don't I don't take it like oh I'm a leader or you know I don't want to be that leader that people want. The, everybody expects that you will be the one to respond. That if something is happening, they all look at you to see what you're gonna do. Mm-hmm. You are afraid too when you are you don't know what to do either. Mm-hmm. You have to stand and stand up and think fast and fit in your in your in your feet and and think about everybody about the well-being of everybody and everything but it's it's a burden in your shoulders to make that decision so it's not an easy thing to be in the leadership position and that's no, why i i always say that very smart people sometimes they don't want to be called leaders because <laughs> so hard and so that i doubt about something how how smart am i you know, but uh, because I had not refused to be told that I'm a leader at different levels, at the community, at the city, at the, uh, even at my church, you know, everywhere, you know, you're a leader, you're a leader at the state, at the national, it is a burden. It is yeah, burden. it is. It you is. You have that, that expectation that you're able to respond to anything and everything. Because sometimes, like when I was saying, when you're feeling tired and vulnerable you all you want to do is just get away and rest and not be mm-hmm. told or talked to or anything you just exactly like, you know, hide and, and you want to hide and, and just grow in your cocoon and and protect yeah. yourself again and then be able to stand up and yes i'm ready to be told i'm a leader yeah. <laughs> but i'm a human being you know, exactly the same issue the same problems that same everything that everybody else it's just that again i was taught to to stand up for what I believe, I I, I was taught to to be strong in the midst of uh, pain, and, and I was taught to work hard, and I was taught to respect others, and above everything, I was taught to provide for others. That's what I was taught. That's what you know, yeah. my inheritance uh, from my ancestors uh, that I carry on. Uh, and although sometimes I don't want it, <laughs> I, yeah. it's it's within me. But when you learn about these things, the expectations of other people and everything. You clarify something that it is incredible about lived experience and your knowledge and your wisdom that you say, I don't know about colonization. But the thing is that, you know, because you're living decolonizing, you are an example of living that. Tell me about the work that you're doing with the Alianza Nacional de Campesinos. Okay, what I'm doing, Alianza, it's a, a national group of farm worker women that, again, in, in thinking about leadership and, and women and, you know, how we always take are courageous and we take on things that we, are, we don't even know, you know, that was like another way of um, beginning to prove that concept. And we began, a friend and I, and other women began this concept of establishing a national alianza, the Mujeres Campesinas, Farm Worker Women. And the idea was to build leadership among these uh, women so we can speak and we can advocate for ourselves and our families and our, and our communities. It's not that old. I think Alianza has been in existence now for seven or eight years, but it now has been 
started to be recognized at very different levels because of the work that has been done. And, and I think that the most important thing here is that we decided that we will bring, that Alianza will be formed by organizations that were started by women or that were run by women farm worker women, and we will train them on, on how you begin an organization, how you have a, you're part of a board training. And I, and among ourselves, in, uh, you know, I have given some trainings on how do you establish a 501c3, you know, organization? How do you go about applying for grants and what is required, what the infrastructure, administrative infrastructure, and then other members, and right now the director, She's very strong in advocacy. She's an organizer and she's really on, on uh, you know, sexual assault uh, prevention. And so, you know, she has done national work on that. So then she comes and teaches about that. And then somebody else comes and teaches about agriculture and, you know, how do you own home gardens and for sustainability. And so we use our own uh, skills and we uh, teach uh, among ourselves. And lately we've been putting that uh, open as webinars. Um, we have started to reach out and I have a group in Mexico that I started replicating campesinos with, with a, a farm worker women group in Mexico by the rural areas and replicating exactly. And, it's, it's, and I see the results, the, the blueprints have been used again. And with mm -hmm. uh, Alianza, they have been used at a national level. So I can see that what we do maintains that ability to replicate itself when you use that. This is about self-empowerment and, and helping individuals, giving them just a little bit of guidance and skills with training because they already have that within themselves. And Alianza, since it's national, it has uh, representatives throughout the nation. So a couple of two things uh, that I wanted to tell you that I think has been interesting and for me and my observations I, I don't need a lot to be happy you know I don't need like luxurious things I find that that's uncomfortable for some people and part of my legacy of leadership I want to see that other leader the leader that I see around me that doesn't know that it's a leader I want to put them there so mm. they are beginning that and send out expectations of our own people are move you to be or act a little bit different in memory of my parents and, and my grandparents and, and everybody that I work with since I was very shy, you know, uh, being humble is the way of honoring them. From your own leadership work and journey, what are some things you're proud of? Well, I think that you were mentioning earlier about passing on that value of humility. And I think passing on that passion and value for service, but in a manner that is humble, even if you're criticized, even if you know you're being criticized by doing or being who you are, you know, not caring about that, just continuing being who you are. I think that eventually is, that genuine aspect of you eventually is appreciated by those that really believe in this type of leadership. So a lot of times I'm against uh, a lot of the odds and trying to keep our values and our culture in a uh, system that doesn't value and respect a lot of times or, or support that they think that you're you're stupid or you're a bad administrator because you do things differently. But I have learned to live with my, myself and my decisions. And if I think that this is the right way and the right thing that will provide that leadership and at the same time value to the individual that I work with, then I don't care. 
I just do it. The other individual that just criticized you and so forth, they're not there to help when you need it. They're not there to guide the people or give them a hand when they need it. I know there's a lot of people that are sincerely in the service for no other reason, for no self-interest, but for the fact of being able to serve or feeling that responsibility of, you know, you have given a leadership skill, leadership role, then you have a responsibility to implement it. It's not complicated, Peter. It just appears to be more complicated. And what I'm doing right now, as I'm thinking eventually that there's going to be a time when I have to retire, I'm thinking about just really focusing on passing on the batut to others, teaching and and building leadership among other younger uh, women that I see or men that I see that really have that in within themselves. What's one thing that you were most proud of in your leadership journey? Seeing the outcomes of those women, men and women, promotoras that have been touched by my leadership. They have found their potential. They're satisfied. They're happy. They're proud of, the, of themselves. And, and when they sing their song, you hear that there's a beautiful song. And that's the most valuable thing. Yeah, my most proud moments are when I see another one of these humble women that I took out of the fields that, you know, were did not go to school, that now a community health worker certificate. And that's their biggest achievement in life. And they feel that, like, that's way, you know, like above a PhD or whatever, but because of the power that they have, the impact that they have, the influence that they have, not just in their family, but their community, that respect they have. But they continue being humble. They continue being just teaching others and helping others and working on making little circles to plant or teaching a diabetes class or going to a, making a presentation at a, in the nation or, or going to speak to a Mexican consulate. You know, whatever their role is, it's like they're multiple, they have multiple skills and, and they're multitaskers and they're respected because of that by their peers and the people, you know, they give them that power, but they don't abuse the power. They just use it to ensure that others are coming behind us, to continue the passing on what we have learned. Thank you Which- Emma, so much for your story, for your vulnerability, for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and experience. Thank you. Muchas gracias, Emma. Well, thank you for thinking that it's a valuable story. Like I said, for me, it's just life. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, if it can help other people, other women, uh, particularly, you know, it would be great. Muchas gracias. Our next episode will be in Spanish. It will be with great honor to have as guest, Dr. Monica Rojas Stewart. She earned her doctoral degree in cultural anthropology from the University of Washington. Dr. Monica Rojas Stewart is a recognized community artist and activist. She recently combined her academic and artistic skills to launch and direct two community-wide art educational organizations. She founded the De Cajon Project and MAS, Movimiento Africano Seattle, both dedicated to promoting and educating about the cultural contributions of people of African descendant in Peru and in Latin America. We'll see you in our next episode with Dr. Monica Rojas Stewart. We welcome your comments on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Apple. For more resources and information, visit our website, www.adelanteleadership.com. We want to hear your thoughts, ideas, and your Latin leadership story. Muchas gracias por escuchar a Adelante Leadership. Thank you for tuning in and stepping into your Latin leadership.